0: You can grab your Bibles and open them up to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I want to let you know that we've got a problem. And our problem, it's a things problem. And we each are part of the problem because we've kind of been taking part in this cultural experiment where we are taking the things of earth and attempting to see if we can find pleasure, if we can find satisfaction, if we can find meaning in the things of earth. I wonder if you've heard about the story of Mr. and Mrs. Thing. I want to share it with you now. Mr. and Mrs. Thing are a very pleasant and successful couple. At least that's the verdict of most people who tend to measure success with a thingometer. When the thingometer is put to the work in the life of Mr. and Mrs. Thing, the result is startling. There's Mr. Thing sitting down on a luxurious and very expensive thing, almost hidden by a large number of other things. Things to sit on, things to sit at, things to cook on, things to eat from, all shiny and new. Things, things, things. Things to clean with, things to wash with. Things to clean and things to wash. Things to amuse, things to give pleasure, and things to watch and things to play. Things for the long, hot summer and things for the short, cold winter. Things for the big Thing in which they live and things for the garden and things for the deck and things for the kitchen and things for the bedroom. Things on four wheels and things with two wheels and things to put on top of the four wheels and things to pull behind the four wheels and things to add to the interior of the things with four wheels. Things, things, things. And there in the middle are Mr. and Mrs. Thing, Smiling and pleased as punch with things. Thinking of more things to add to things. Secure In their castle of things. I wonder if you can resonate with the story of Mr. and Mrs. Thing. See, we can be tempted to believe that the search for satisfaction will be accomplished once we only have a little bit more. We wonder if our search for satisfaction will finally be done if I only had one more thing. I wonder if you could answer this question this morning. I would truly be satisfied if I only had blank. Solomon wants to join us this morning and he wants to completely destroy this idea that we can find satisfaction if we just have one more thing. He wants to obliterate the notion that we could find pleasure in the things of earth. And so let's read Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 to 11 together. Solomon writes this, I said in my heart, come now. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom. And how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven. During the few days of their life, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This morning we're going to learn from Solomon that if I believe that I would be satisfied if I only had more, then this is what I'm going to experience as I search for satisfaction in the things of earth. And the first thing is this. When I search for satisfaction in the things of earth, I'll experience the empty pleasures of play. I'll experience the empty pleasures of play. Now, this morning, we joined Solomon in his search, in his quest for satisfaction in the things of earth. And in many ways, there's no one better who ever lived in the history of humankind, there's no one better to lead us on this quest. If there was anybody who was able to get into his possession anything he could ever want, it was him. Solomon was the man, year after year, who was on front of magazines labeled world's richest man. He had at his disposal unlimited resources. And so it's fitting that Solomon's not only the most qualified man to search out satisfaction in the things of earth, he's also the man that did it. So look what he says in verse 1. He says, I said in my heart, come now. I will test you with every pleasure. Enjoy yourself. See, Solomon's on the search for meaning and he now takes up as an experiment the the thought that if I just have more, maybe I can find pleasure, maybe I can find satisfaction. Now Solomon testing these things would work like this. It almost becomes a sort of experiment for him where all the things of the earth are passing him as though they're on a conveyor belt. And Solomon's going to pick up each thing, and it's as though he's trying to squeeze it out, every ounce of possible pleasure he could take if he commits himself to this thing of the earth. And he squeezes it out and says, can I truly find satisfaction in it? Well, no, this this is vanity. And so he puts it down, and the conveyor belt keeps moving, and then he picks up the next thing. And thing after thing, he keeps testing to see if he can find satisfaction in the things of earth. But in the end, after trying to enjoy himself, after unlimited indulgence in the things of earth, he comes to this conclusion. Look at it in verse two, or at the end of verse one. He says, but behold, he says, but behold, look at this, this also was vanity. See, what Solomon's trying to do is get every ounce of pleasure from every thing that is in the earth. And what he finds is after he's tried this test, the outcome is Emptiness. Emptiness. And so the first pleasure that he takes up, the first satisfaction that he takes up is the the search for satisfaction in play. And so look what he says at the end of verse 3. We're going to skip a few verses, but then we'll go back. He says that he would search for satisfaction till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. And so Solomon would sit back and he would allow the things of earth to entertain him. He would see what activities he could partake of that would actually bring him joy and would actually bring him pleasure. And he thought this, maybe if I only had more experiences of play, maybe if I only had more experiences of entertainment, then I would finally find satisfaction. And so he goes out on a search and look what he says in verse 2, I said of laughter it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? See, the first pleasure that Solomon took up was the pleasure of comedy. And he said, maybe if I could just experience more and more laughter, then I would be truly satisfied, then I would be truly pleased with the things of earth. But is the outcome is that he says laughter is mad. Now, the, type of, the way that Solomon uses the word mad isn't like slang. Like someone would be like, oh, that, that documentary we saw on Netflix, that was mad sick. It's not that type of mad, and it's not even the type of mad that's like lunacy, like you're a lunatic if you think this thing that we're watching is funny. The way that Solomon uses the word mad is actually it's, it's morally perverse. And so Solomon says laughter is mad because it often reveals in our heart our acceptance of the things that God considers an abomination, Or we can use laughter in a way, maybe we're just overly sarcastic, and there may be a place for sarcasm, but sometimes what our sarcasm does is it reveals this passive-aggressive truth, something that we're actually upset with, and we make a sarcastic remark, and we hide it in laughter, we hide it in comedy, but it's actually something that we're complaining about, it's actually something that we're upset at with God for being a truth in this world. Solomon says this of pleasure, what use is it? See, even in Ecclesiastes 3, Solomon's going to say there's a time for laughter, but what he also says is this God-given time of laughter, this God-given gift of laughter, can quickly be consumed by a time that's needed for weeping. And so you can commit yourself to laughter, but in the search for pleasure, it's a useless pursuit. Solomon discovers that laughter can't, help him escape the reality of the brokenness and the pain of our world. Laughter distracts our minds for a moment, but when it fades, we remember that the world that we live in is broken and cursed. And so we can turn on a Netflix special and we can momentarily forget the pains of this world. But at some point, that comedy special, at some point, that thing that we're laughing at, the laughter is going to fade and we will not be laughing at the oddities that are in our world anymore. We're going to be languishing under the oddities of our world. And Solomon discovers this, and so he moves on in his search, and the next place that he searches for satisfaction in is in wine. And so look what he says in verse 3. He says, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. In the search for pleasure, Solomon turns to wine and he turns to alcohol. Now, by saying that alcohol is an empty pleasure, it's not so Psalm is not t- talking about the type of drinking that leads you to being on your knees, in front of your toilet, puking in your toilet. No one is going to that person and saying, "Hey, have you discovered the meaning of life?" Likewise, no one goes to the person whose drinking has led them to be stumbling down an alleyway in the middle of the night mumbling about, who knows what. No one goes to that person and says, "Hey, have you found satisfaction?" We just don't do that. We know that that type of drinking would never lead to satisfaction. We know that we'd never go to that type of person to answer these questions we have about satisfaction. What Solomon is doing is seeing if there's any way that he can use wine to put him in a frame of mind where he enjoys life. That's why he said that while he was on this search, his heart was still guiding him with wisdom. He was trying to use wine in a variety of ways to see if it could help him in his search for satisfaction. And so maybe after a long day where Solomon's hundreds of concubines and hundreds of wives were just nagging at him endlessly, Solomon might walk into his kitchen and say, It's wine o'clock! Maybe you'd see him, he's filled with the anxiety and stress of leading a kingdom, and he's got a mug that says, Coffee keeps me running until it's it's acceptable to drink wine. Maybe this is the way that he committed to wine as he would turn it to try to put himself into a frame of mind where life feels good, but really what he was doing was just numbing himself to the emptiness and the pain of this world. And I wonder if there's a word in here for some of us this morning. Maybe after a long day where the kids have done everything to get on your nerves you're turning to wine for pleasure maybe you've slipped into the practice of after a long day of work you get home and the stress and hardships of work have been nagging at you and so you've turned to beer for pleasure maybe you've been turning to drink to find romantic satisfaction in your marriage Maybe you're turning to alcohol because there are things in your life that you just don't want to deal with. And so maybe there's something that you're afraid of and you're trying to get away from it and you're searching for satisfaction in a thing like alcohol. Maybe it's crushing debt. Maybe it's poor performance reviews at work. Whatever it is, you're turning to alcohol to try to get away from it. Maybe it's part of a larger identity problem you have where you just don't think that people would ever like you if you were yourself. And so you turn to drink to find romance with your wife or you turn to drink whenever you hang out with your friends because you're just convinced if you don't have alcohol that they're not going to be pleased with you. And so you've bought into the empty pleasure of alcohol. Now, alcohol and laughter aren't the only ways that we experience the empty pleasures of play. In many ways, all of us are searching for satisfaction in entertainment. And now entertainment industries are catching on to this. And so you finish an episode of something you're watching on Netflix, and what does Netflix say? One more show. Just one more show, and you have five seconds to decide about it. And so you can binge watch an entire season of shows, and it will still leave you empty. It will still leave you wanting more. All of us could say that we've gone onto YouTube and followed a YouTube vortex for what feels like forever. And you wonder how you got to this thing, but you realize that there's video after video after video after video of this obscure thing that you're searching out on YouTube. And just it's just saying, watch one more video and you'll be entertained. And you can go on Facebook and you can scroll and scroll and scroll. And you never get to the bottom of, these, of social media trying to entertain you, trying to satisfy you with pleasure. And so maybe TV leaves you empty and so you turn to video games and video games promise just one more level. Just one more game. They promise to finally satisfy the itch that you have to be pleased. So much so that even video game companies are catching on to this. You know what the slogan of PlayStation is? The slogan is greatness awaits. Now that should make us scratch our head and say, what are you talking about? Are you telling me that greatness in my life is when I put off everything else in life and pretend to be Spider-Man for three hours? Is that what you're saying to me? That this is when I've truly achieved greatness? That this is when I've truly achieved success? Is when I forget the world and invest myself in playing this video game? Now, some of us are a little more sophisticated and we are too busy for TV, and we're too busy for movies, and we're too busy for video games, and so we can laugh at this, but in our hearts and in our minds, we dream about a time when we could be freed from responsibility and just have a week away from life to dive into entertainment, to dive into play. Deep down, we believe that we can find satisfaction in the pleasures of play, and Solomon's here to show us this morning that it is an empty pursuit. It is an empty pleasure. Well, here's the next experience Solomon shows you. If you believe you could have satisfaction by having one more thing, Solomon wants to show you that when you do that, you'll experience the empty pursuit of property. And so the next thing that Solomon takes up in his experiment is seeing if he could satisfy himself with his property. And so look what he says in verse 4. He says, "I made great works. I built houses and I built houses and planted vineyards for myself and I made myself gardens and parks." And planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Now, I want you to notice something about this chunk of verses that Solomon tells us about his pursuit of pleasure in his property. I want you to notice that the things he built for himself were the best things. And so he says in verse 4, I made great works. Solomon sought to live the lifestyle of the rich and famous, he built the best homes. The homes he built would have had the same architectural beauty that we're told about his royal palace in 1 Kings 7. It says it took 10 years to finish. Solomon was serious about building homes that if you could find satisfaction in, you would find satisfaction in. He would have masterfully planted the most lavish gardens. They would have displayed the most beautiful flowers, ripe fruit, abundant vineyards, What Solomon wants to see is that even if we have the best things, we can't find satisfaction in them. And so isn't it true every time you've bought a phone, it's like the next day you discover the better phones coming out? Isn't it depressing how quickly that kitchen that you updated gets outdated? So you finish your kitchen and you're imagining it. Homes and Gardens is coming to put you on the front cover of their magazine. Then a few years later, you're looking at your kitchen and you're wondering if maybe you're going to be on the new show, Home's Gone Bad, or something. See, these things, they satisfy us for a time, but then they leave us empty. And we can laugh at these things, but it's all too common for us to put our hope for happiness in better things. And so maybe the most joy you felt in a while is the joy you had when you ordered your phone and it was in the mail. And maybe the most hope you've had in a while is the hope that you feel when you watch HGTV and you dream about the kind of home that you could live in. Or maybe you feel some kind of contentment now, but that contentment is just fueled because you're constantly dreaming of a day where maybe you have more money, or maybe you got that promotion, and you can finally have those things that you've always wanted. And you're optimistic about that day coming, and so you're fine for now because you know someday you'll have the next best thing. Answer me this question. Why aren't the rich, why aren't the ones with the most things, the best things, why aren't they the happiest people? Why aren't they universally all happy? The answer is because you can't find pleasure in the things that you have. That's not where satisfaction comes. Now, the magnitude of Solomon's creation is emphasized in that everything is in the plural. Take a look at this, okay? He built houses, vineyards, not just one, gardens, parks, all kinds of fruit trees, and pools. One wasn't enough. He had multiple of these. He had great homes everywhere. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, okay, Solomon had a lot of things, but he was missing one key piece of information when it came to building a house that could truly satisfy you. He needed to build his house in Brooklyn. Brooklyn is the promised land. If you don't have a house in Brooklyn, I know why you aren't pleased. Or some of you are saying, no, it's got to be in the boonies, away from the hustle and bustle of the city, or it's got to be in the Muskokas. Now, none of us are saying that this morning after the snow. Solomon would have had homes everywhere, and his declaration is still, if you put your hope for pleasure in a home, you will be disappointed. Now notice that Solomon also had many homes that he could go to, and so maybe one home would, be, would have a couple of his wives and a couple of his concubines, and maybe another home would have some of his family. Maybe one home was a retreat where it was just him and servants, people serving him all day. Maybe another home was his private home where he could just go and study, and no one was there to bother him. And just as a home won't satisfy us, you need to know that we won't find satisfaction in in imagining that we could find pleasure when maybe we live in a home where our kids are gone. And maybe you think, well, once once I'm an empty nester, once my kids are gone, I'll, I'll find pleasure then. Maybe even worse, there's some in this room who would imagine that they would be satisfied if they had a house without their spouse in it. And you need to hear that this will not lead to satisfaction and that many leave their homes, they destroy their families in pursuit of this empty pleasure. Wondering if their living scenario would lead to more satisfaction. And I wonder if there are any here who are believing the lie that the grass is greener on the other side of a new marriage. And Solomon wants you to know this is an empty pursuit of pleasure, thinking that you can be satisfied by a home with different people in it. Now, we get a sense in the text that Solomon is rebuilding the type of paradise that Adam and Eve lived in. And so it says he had all kinds of fruit trees. And this is a hint for us that this is what what Solomon's really doing is kind of building this Eden paradise. And so he rebuilt the garden, but the garden had one distinct difference he could eat of all of the trees. And everything in this little paradise that Solomon built was for himself. So let me read this text again. I want to show you how everything was for him. Look at it. Look how selfish this paradise is for Solomon. He says, I built great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. See, Solomon had built a paradise of great houses that were many in number, and each perfectly served him. And his declaration is still this this is an empty pursuit. Now, we are foolish to think if we, in our infinitely, infinitely less riches than Solomon, having less riches than Solomon, were foolish to think we could finally discover the key to having a home that could satisfy us. Solomon wants us to hear this morning, you'll never find satisfaction in your home. You'll never find pleasure in your property. Well, Solomon goes on in his quest for pleasure in the things of earth, and the last thing he wants us to know that we'll experience if we think that we'd have pleasure in one more thing is this, we'll experience the empty promise of possessions. If we think that one more thing will finally satisfy us, we will experience the empty promise of possessions. And so maybe some of us think, can the promise of possessions bring satisfaction? Well, Solomon wants to destroy that. And so in verse 7, he writes this, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. Now you need to know that the type of slavery that Scripture often talks about isn't the uh, harsh slavery that we think about of the last 300 years. It had much more of a function of an employee-employer relationship. And Solomon's saying that he had countless servants who would wait on him hand and foot. If he had a task he didn't want to do, Solomon had someone who could do it. He could work as little or as much as he wanted because he had enough, people, enough money to pay people to do whatever he wanted. Now this uh, deconstructs a false belief we can have. I want to share with you a study of two psychologists in 19, who studied in 19, the 1970s and their names were, were Edward L. Deesey and Richard M. Ryan. They set out to answer this question: How can you be happy in life? Now, part of their answer came to be that you can be happy in life once you've gained control in life. And so you'll find happiness once you're no longer under the man, once you're no longer, your schedule is no longer dictated by someone else. You get to choose your schedule, you get to choose how you spend your time because you have enough money and possessions to be able to do whatever you want. In our hearts, we can agree with this. Conclusion That maybe we'll find satisfaction when we have more money, more possessions, so that we can do whatever we want, whenever we want, wherever we want. And we can buy into this dream that true happiness is found when we can take a vacation at any point in time. We can fly wherever we want. We can do whatever we want because we have nothing restricting our time. And Solomon is here to test the claim that these two psychologists made, that control that comes from money and possessions, can lead to happiness. And this is the result for Solomon. It's an empty promise. It's an empty promise. More control won't satisfy you. And so next we see that Solomon, he had all the possessions that would show the world he's rich. And so he writes, I also had great possessions of herds and flocks more than any before me in Jerusalem. And if his his great possessions weren't enough, he also had all the money in the world to be able to buy whatever he wanted. And so he writes, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and treasure of kings and provinces. Solomon committed to acquiring as many possessions and as much money as he possibly could. He became like John D. Rockefeller, who was once asked, how much money is enough? And his answer was, just a little bit more. And each of us commit to this search, we get small tastes of its end, that the more money we have, the more things we have, the more we want. And so even Benjamin Franklin would say this, this will come up on the screen, money never made a man happy yet, nor will it. There is nothing in its nature to produce happiness. The more a man has, the more he wants. Instead of it filling a vacuum, it makes one. If it satisfies one want, it doubles or triples that want in another way. See, each of us know this to be true about the possessions we have. We know that our current possessions aren't providing us happiness, but we believe that maybe our future possessions will provide us happiness. We believe that maybe the next thing that I buy will be the thing that will finally satisfy us. I remember a time where uh, Amber and I, we only had one car and I was dreaming of the day that man, we could have two cars, and Amber could drive to the place that she wants to drive, and I could drive to the place that I want to drive. And I, I said, it doesn't need to be a super nice car. Like, it doesn't need to be a sports car or anything. It just needs to be a car that when you push your foot on the gas pedal, it goes. Well, we got that 2004 Honda Civic. And ever since then, I've been realizing that even a car that when you push your foot on the gas pedal, and goes, will prove to not satisfy you. And so the other day, I was driving with a friend, and I tossed my friend the keys, because who doesn't want the opportunity to drive a 2004 Honda Civic? And I tossed him the keys, and I walked over to the passenger door, and I went to open it, and the handle ripped out in my hand. And that very same day, no word of a lie, I'm driving, and my windshield wiper flies off. And you can go out there right now, it's twist-tied on. And if you drive by the office at any given time, you will find me beside Mark Sylvester's car boosting my car because it won't start. In fact, I almost had to email Brian my sermon this morning because I went to start it and it wouldn't start. And what Solomon is teaching me is that money will never buy me a possession that I will be totally satisfied in. Even my next car won't totally satisfy me. Now, not only will having money and possessions not satisfy me, Solomon also wants us to hear that having people who live to serve us won't satisfy us. And so Solomon says, I also gathered for myself singers, both male and female. Now, maybe having singers follow you around all day and serenade you isn't your uh, thought of what satisfaction is. That might just freak you out a little bit more than please you. But, it's not just Solomon that believes that it's other people that can satisfy him. We can fall into that belief too. We can believe that if we just were able to lean into other people, whether it's to entertain us or to please us or satisfy us in any way, that we would finally be pleased. It's the tendency of our heart to believe that other people can please us. And I just wonder if there's anyone here who's placed their hope in the satisfaction that another person provides, and you need to hear that others will always let you down. This is why I'm always concerned when I hear people who talk about an offense that another person has caused them or how another church has caused them to be hurt. Because I know that believing that you can be satisfied by another person is dangerous territory. That's why when we renamed the church, I... Thought about suggesting that we rename it Redemption Church, but then we have this slogan that says, We hurt people too. You'll get hurt here as well. Because what's going to happen when you, when you get 500 plus sinners in the same room to do life together? For heaven's sakes, what, what happens when two sinners stand at the altar and say, I do? A lot of sin. I can hear Amber saying, Amen. We put our hope in this sinner, and and we expect him to please us, but but that person is a sinner, and they're always going to let us down. This is why if our church isn't full of forgiveness, we can never live together. Because we're sinners trying to do life together, and when sinners try to do life together, all that happens is sin. And you need to know that another person could never totally satisfy you. And there are some that are even placing their hope for satisfaction in a good thing like their spouse, in a good thing like their church, in a good thing that God has given them like friends. And you need to know that it could never, never please you. You are believing an empty promise. Now Solomon shows us the last place that he tests to get pleasure. And it's at the end of verse 8. He says, He got many concubines, the delights of the sons of men. Solomon had more sexual partners than any person could ever imagine. In 1 Kings, it gives us the raw data, he had 700 wives and princesses and more than 300 concubines. And so Solomon knew better than anybody that he could not be satisfied with some type of erotic pleasure. This is probably why when Solomon writes nine chapter, this nine-chapter manual on how to parent in the book of Proverbs, three of those chapters are dedicated to fleeing from sexual immorality. Because he knows the emptiness of the promise of pleasure and satisfaction in sex. Now, it's interesting because in order for Solomon to pursue sexual satisfaction, he would have had to leave his house. This wasn't modern day like we have today. He would have had to leave his house and seek it out. And even still, the pull was so strong for him that he did that. Now, you need to know that if you have in your hand this small rectangular glowing object, you have more access to thousands and thousands and thousands of sexual partners than Solomon ever had. And Solomon is here to tell you that you will never, never, never find pleasure in them. That it is an empty pursuit. That it is vanity And yet still, the billion-dollar porn industry pumps out this message that you'll be satisfied with just one more sexual experience. And you need to hear this morning, it's vanity. It's meaningless. There is no way you could ever get pleasure in that way. Now Solomon's done his test, and in verse 9 he summarizes what he came to find. To find. He says, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. After the test is over, after the search is finished, Solomon concludes that seeking pleasure in the things of earth is a meaningless pursuit. Now, I never shared with you the ending of the story of Mr. and Mrs. Thing. But I think you're ready now to agree that what they experience at the end of the life, at the end of their life is very much what we will experience. And so the end of that story is, well, I just want you to know that your things can't last. They're going to pass. There's going to be an end to them. Oh, maybe an error in judgment, maybe a temporary loss of concentration, or maybe you'll just pass them off to a second-hand thing dealer, or maybe they'll wind up a massive, mangled, metal being towed off to the thing yard. And what about the things in your house? Well, it's time for bed. Put out the cat. Make sure you lock the door so some thing-taker doesn't come and take your things. And that's the way life goes, doesn't it? And someday when you die they only put one thing in a box, you. See, the search for satisfaction in the things of earth is an exhausting search. And if we're searching for satisfaction in the things of earth, someday we will be totally exhausted by that search like Solomon was. But when we put last things first like Solomon's teaching us to do in Ecclesiastes, it forces us to realize that we too will die and we too will just become a thing of dust. See, what this passage teaches us is that the worldview of materialism really is an empty worldview. That you can't find satisfaction by acquiring all that you could possibly imagine. But this passage leaves us with the question, how do I find satisfaction in the things of earth? Or maybe a better question is, why do I find satisfaction in the things of earth? And so some people see what Solomon teaches here, and their response to it is, well, if materialism isn't the thing, then maybe I'll practice escapism. And maybe true pleasure is found when I get away from all the things of the earth. And we see this movement being taken on by a movement called minimalism. And the idea of the minimalist is you have the least amount of things possible. One pair of clothes... One spoon, one fork, one knife. The more you have, the less satisfaction you have. And the less you have, the more satisfaction you have. And we may not buy into the minimalist lifestyle to that degree, but sometimes we can believe that maybe true joy is found when I have less and less and less possessions. But the answer can't be that the things of earth are evil in themselves writes to Timothy, he says, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. Now Solomon's going to get to the answer once he reaches verse 24. Look what he says in verse 24 of chapter 2. He says, there is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? For to One, to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge. And listen to this, church. Joy. Joy. See, what Solomon ultimately wants to teach us this morning is this, that we can truly enjoy the things of earth when we're able to look through the things of earth to the God who gave us the things of earth. When we look through the things of earth, we see the goodness of the giver. And Solomon says that the path to enjoying the gift is looking through the gift to the giver who gave you that gift to enjoy. And so Augustine would write this. He says this, This is how our souls climb out of their weariness towards you and cease to lean on the things you created. We pass through them to you, Lord God, who created them, in a marvelous way. Do you know once you know the giver of good gifts, once you know the God who created the things of this earth, you are actually enabled to enjoy the thing itself because now you don't look to that thing for pleasure, you look through that thing to the only one who can satisfy you, the only one who can please you. Once we know God, we can find true satisfaction but there's only one way to know God. And the amazing truth is here that God has spoken and that he has spoken through his son to us and that we can know him if we know his son. And so listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. That's why when Jesus came, he came with this express mission to show the world his Father. And so he prays to the Father. He prays these words, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. See, Jesus came to make the Father known. Jesus lived to provide the righteousness that we needed to be in a relationship with the God who made the things of earth. Jesus died to cover the sins that we had that kept us from being in a relationship with the God who created the things of earth. And now, through Jesus, the floodgates are opened for sinners to come in and bring nothing except their sin to Jesus, who says, when you bring me your sin, you receive forgiveness. See, through Jesus, we have access to the throne. We have access to God the Father. And you may be here, and you may have been on that search for satisfaction in the things of the earth, but you need to hear that you will never find satisfaction unless you know God through Jesus Christ. You need to hear that the pursuit of pleasure in the things of earth is an empty and foolish pursuit but there is one who calls you this morning and he calls you with these words the words that are given to us in isaiah 55 verses 1 to 2 it's god calling us and listen to what he says he says come everyone who thirsts come to the waters and he who has no money come buy and eat come buy wine and milk without money and without price why do you spend your money for that which is not bread Why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Listen, if you have been on the search for satisfaction in the things of earth and you do not know God, would you come to him today? Would you delight yourself in the rich food that he offers to you now in this very moment? See, once you know God, you're able to walk with God and the things of earth become vehicles for God's glory. All the things that God created, they become little mini preachers in themselves, and they're all declaring God is glorious, God is good. And you can enjoy the things of earth because when you enjoy them, they're declaring the greatness of the God who created them. That's why I was reading this morning in Psalm 19, in this amazing verse I read, it says the heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Everything God created is proclaiming God's glory. I love what Jonathan Edwards writes regarding this. He says, The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends, and we could add to this list, all the things of the earth are but shadows. God is a substance. These are but scattered beams. But God is the sun. These are streams. But God is the ocean. See, once you know God through Christ, you look through the things of earth to the glory of God. And so you are actually free to enjoy that thing that you find so much satisfaction in. Because as you enjoy it, you're not saying that pleasure can be found here. You're saying that you receive satisfaction from the God who created you. And all the glory is going to God the Father. Now really practically, John Piper will always say it better than I do. So let's hear it from him. All of God's creation becomes a beam to be looked along. Or a sound to be heard along or a fragrance to be smelled along, or a flavor to be tasted along, or a touch to be felt along. All our scents become partners with the eyes of the heart in perceiving the glory of God through the physical world. See, once you know God, all the things of earth no longer become the thing themselves that can provide you satisfaction, but the things that you look along, the things that you look through to see the glory of the God who gave it to you. And so Solomon does this for us this morning. He actually unleashes our potential to enjoy the things of earth. He frees us from the guilt of materialism and the folly of escapism and he unlocks the pleasure that can come from things like our play. He shows us the joy that can come when we recognize that our home, that our property is a gift from his hand. He shows us how to be satisfied and content with the possessions that we have. And he shows us it's okay to enjoy all the things of the earth when we look through them to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you. And God, we praise your name for giving us the good things of this earth. And God, we just take this moment to confess that there have been times, Lord, when we have worshipped the gift itself. And we have enjoyed the things you give, gave as though, Lord, you didn't give them to us, as though we earned them for ourselves. And we have tried to search for satisfaction in the things of earth. And we have found time and time again, Lord, that they are empty of the pleasure that they promise us. And so we confess that to you, God, this morning. And by your mercy and by your grace, we trust your forgiveness, Lord, that you forgive us of these things. And we ask, Lord, that by your grace, you would continue to change us. Change us, Lord, so that we would not be so fickle as to think that we can find joy in the things of this earth. Change us so that we would see you and know that only satisfaction comes when we know you and when we live our lives to glorify you in all the things of earth. We pray that all the time, Lord, at every moment, that as we live with the things of earth and we buy the things of earth and we have the things of earth, Lord, that this would all proclaim your glory. Lord, that through us, all the earth would shout your praise. God, we pray that you would accomplish this, and we need you to do it, so we ask that you would. God, we pray this in the name of your Son. Amen.